You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Tuesday, Canada. How's everybody doing today? I hope you are well. We have an unbelievably interesting show today. We're going to hold some politicians' feet to the fire, and they need it. They need it, man. And we're going to debunk some myths. We're going to talk about your money, the future of your money. You are going to meet someone who made what I consider one of the great discoveries of all time recently, the sunken ship of the great, incredible Ernest Shackleton Antarctic voyage when he Ernest Shackleton's lost ship, the Endurance, was recently found. And we're going to talk to Dan Snow, who broadcast it, who was there. Amazing. Can't wait. I love, I've told you that story. He was a member of the team who discovered the endurance. Like, you know, I went and looked for Franklin's ships in the Arctic. He found the Shackleton ship in the Antarctic. Amazing. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to break out some news. And that's where I'm going to start. Because there's, I do not remember a time, and if you feel bewildered by the news... You are living through a, 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 a bomb of news. I'm not just talking about the war in Ukraine, which is so consequential. There's talks going on today. The realignment of the world, the revivification of NATO. The Cold War threatening to become a hot war. Russia becoming a pariah state after Glasnost, after the Soviet Union collapsed. We thought, you know what? Let's welcome Russia into the family of nations. Let's, let's welcome them. And then Vladimir Putin slowly said, no, I'm going to rebuild the old Soviet mindset. And he invades Georgia and he invades, snatches Crimea and culminating uh, supports the Syrian regime and, 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 Levels cities like Aleppo during the horrific Syrian crisis. No one seems to talk about anymore. That Putin propped up Bashar al-Assad and kept that brutal dictator in power. Disgraceful chemical weapons on his own people. A disgrace. Putin. Cheated at the Olympics. Putin. And then, of course, he invades Ukraine. Thinks it's going to be an easy victory, but it's not. Now he's going to move some troops away from Kiev, thank God, and try to negotiate. As John F. Kennedy said, you can't negotiate with someone who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is negotiable. That's what Kennedy said. You can't negotiate with a partner who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is negotiable. Kennedy, smart. That's how Putin thinks. Yeah, you know, don't touch Russia, but now that we've invaded Ukraine, I'd like to sit down and negotiate. Maybe we'll, we'll bite off the eastern part. No. Ukraine is winning. Russia's losing. It's brutal. Now is not the time to give in to Vladimir Putin. But that's not what I want to talk about. The news is big here. And, and I'm going to say this because in the last 10 days... Justin Trudeau's been on something of a tear. Now, there's a good side and a bad side of an ambitious prime minister. But I I want, make no mistake, 
Justin Trudeau now is clearly in a moment where he is about to get things done, which means maybe he's in his legacy phase, and we got to be very careful. And I was thinking about Harper and Chrétien and Martin, Mulroney, like consequential prime ministers. I mean, think about Brian Mulroney, right? The, The NAFTA agreement, the GST, acid rain, the enormous work he did against apartheid. He's a consequential guy. Kretsch has some consequential policies. Harper. But I would argue that Justin Trudeau right now, when all is said and done, might be the most consequential in terms of changing what the country's like. And there's a good side and a bad side. And I mean good from a liberal point of view and, and bad from a liberal point of view. Which means this. These aren't editorial comments. Just think about, I'll start from today and we'll move backwards. Today, he's finally announcing the new plan for emissions. The climate plan that says the oil and gas industry, this is what's announced today. They tabled it. You got to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 by 42%. Message today to the oil and gas sector, so consequential. Especially in a time of inflation, this could be big. Let's. We'll talk about it. So the emissions reduction plan was tabled today. This is massive. We've got to break it down because we've got to cut emissions by 2030 to 60% of what they were in 2005. And that's going to take some big, big action. Because our economy is growing. And so whether it's transport or oil and gas, there's going to be big cuts. So that happened today. But that's consequential. Remember, Canada, the first country to have a national price on carbon. That's a huge thing. Now, if Pierre Polyevre wins the conservative leadership race, he'll knock it out. But you've got conservatives like Lisa Raitt, many others who are saying you cannot be a governing party in Canada without having a carbon, a national price on carbon anymore. Can't do it. So that's a debate within conservative circles. But I will just say this. In the last federal election, it was the first time in history, the conservatives, the liberals, and the NDP and the Greens, every single party put forward a price on carbon. Every single party. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was a whose price is better, but it wasn't our price or no price. That's consequential. That was changing. I mean, just think about the policies. Yesterday, he spent, he said, I'm going to announce the, the F-35 jets. He's going to buy for $19 billion, 88 jets. Now, he campaigned in 2015 about, I will never buy these jets. I will never buy these jets. This is the big trouble with Trudeau. He says something and you never know what he's going to say again. He may contradict himself uh, years later. Right? Like, like here's, here's Trudeau right now. I'll just play you the clip. This is Trudeau 2015, six years later, seven years later, he's a different Trudeau. Here he is on the F-35 in 2015. The new liberal government won't buy the overpriced F-35 stealth fighter jet. Yes, you did. Now you're buying 88 of them for $19 billion. He used to rail against the conservatives for not giving any details about the jet. Well, I'm going to actually interview his procurement minister next. I'm going to play you. Seven years later, after canceling the prog contract, they have zero answers. So, yes, Trudeau does a lot, spends a lot, 
but sometimes he flip flops a lot. So, but you got listen, you got a national price on carbon. Now he's buying thirty five the F thirty five jets. He's made a a deal, the confidence and supply deal with the with the. NDP, that fundamentally changes how minority governments will work in the future. He's going to now put a dental plan and a national pharmacare plan, $20 billion. Yesterday, he signed a child care plan with Ontario, $13.2 billion, right? That means he's now done national child care. He's got the child benefit program, the F-35 jets. He's got a health, new health care deal with the provinces, and he'll do another one. He's extended CPP. He's legalized pot. He's legalized medical assistance in dying. He's got a new NAFTA agreement with the United States. He did the COVID relief programs. He's got gender balance in cabinet. This guy's done a lot. Now, you may not like it. But let's not, this guy's not a minor figure anymore. And he, every day, these are multi-billion dollar announcements. Now, the big question for him is, who's paying for the party? He's got a budget. We may get the budget announcement today, maybe. But who's paying for all this? He's, he's never met a single budget promise he's made in seven years. Never met it once. So, if you're a liberal, you're like, this guy's the most consequential prime minister in generations. Because he's done more. You have a good argument. But if you're on the other side, you say, yeah, but this guy spent us into oblivion. And not only have there been ethical lapses and ethical scandals, but he says stuff, but there are no details. And I'm going to prove a bit of that because I'm going to now next grill the procurement minister on the $19 billion announcement to buy the F-35s next. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Well, it is a multi-billion dollar fighter jet backflip by the liberals. They finally said we are going to buy 88 F-35 fighter jets from Lockheed Martin. We're going to negotiate the final contract in the next seven months to replace the CF-18s. I know we said in 2015 we would never buy it. We campaigned on not buying it. I guess we've changed and we're going to spend $19 billion on it. And I guess we were wrong when we said we could buy a better, lower cost option. We can't. Why the political turnaround? Well, I spoke to Philomena Tassi, Canada's Minister of Public Services and Procurement. She's in charge of buying it. And I said, look, in 2015, you said you wouldn't buy it. You'd said you'd have a more affordable alternative. Could you tell Canadians why your government broke the promise not to buy them and why this process took seven years to finally get done? We started the process in 2017. We had suppliers that were engaged. Five suppliers came forward. We opened up the RFP and we did this in a phased bid way. And what that means is each of the bidders would have an opportunity to go back and forth because we didn't want bidders to be eliminated with through a misunderstanding or not having an opportunity to explain their bids. And so the process has taken time, but that time is important because at the end of the day, you end up with a credible process process that was rigorous there was actually 13 evaluation teams and so uh, hey the process is going to take time this is a significant investment we have to get it right no i get it but i I get it but but it turns out that we've ended up back where we were now now your government the the harper government said they were going to buy 65 f-35s with no competition as you say sole source 
they promised to spend $9 billion to buy the planes. That ended up not including the cost to operate and sustain them. Then the price went up to $45 billion, what's called the cradle-to-grave cost. Can you tell Canadians what is the price per plane and what is the cradle-to-grave sustainable cost? Okay, excellent question. So let me begin by saying in our defense policy, strong, secure and engaged, we have committed between 15 and 19 billion, so up to 19 billion for this. And that includes the costs that the Auditor General had highlighted weren't in the previous Conservative plan. And um, it, so it's infrastructure, it's maintenance, all those things are included. Right now, we are at what is described as the decision is to move to the finalization stage. This is to ensure that the government and Lockheed Martin can come to the final terms of the agreement. We can't now start talking about costs because we, we have to wait to ensure that they can come to final terms of the agreement. So we don't want to jeopardize okay, but, the but, process. But you've ordered, uh, let, let's be clear, you've already made the decision to order them. There's, uh, you know, Canada's already paid into the consortium. In the consortium, the deal in the Memorandum of Understanding in the consortium, which we paid hundreds of millions of dollars into to be part of the, the buy, Canada gets to buy these planes at the same cost as the United States per unit. But in the U.S., there is furious debate about the estimated sustainment cost price escalation of this plane. In fact, the Government Accountability Office in the United States concluded that the sustainment costs over the life cycle recently went from $1.1 trillion to $1.3 trillion, leading to affordability constraints. I'm going to read you this, quote, the service will collectively be confronted with tens of billions of dollars in sustainment costs that they project as unaffordable during the program. So can you tell Canadians, after we've agreed to buy this, what the sustainment cost per jet is? Okay, so two points. The first is we have not yet agreed to buy it. This is part of the procurement process. We are now in the finalization stage. So this process is contingent upon the government and Lockheed Martin coming to terms and agreeing on those terms. With respect to the Joint Fighter Program, the Joint Fighter Program actually gives us access to the F-35, but I will tell you that part of the rigorous process which cost is a part of, our cost includes maintenance and training as part of the cost. And at the end of the day, the advantage of the competitive process is that they have to have uh, the highest rating of cost, capability right. and economic benefits. So at the end of okay, the day, we are going to get the best deal for Canadians. And this is a significant investment. So that's why that we are committed to this process. And I can tell you as a procurement minister, I can't underestimate the importance of it. But, but, but Minister, there's no way that the $19 billion also includes sustainment costs over 50 years. You, you know that. The, the, the Conservatives were, the um, Auditor General was talking about $45 billion for the Conservatives who were buying like 20 fewer planes. We've got 88 planes 10 years later. So the $19 billion cannot be the full operating and sustainment cost. Do you know the final number of the budget over the lifespan of the, of, of the jet? 
So again, going back, Evan, I can't share the details of what the cost is because that would compromise the process. Right now, they are in a process of trying to finalize this arrangement, which we're going to, it's a minimum of seven months to do that. It shows you the level of detail and the scrutiny that goes into this. And so that process is underway. So I cannot talk about the cost of the plane, the jet. What I, I can I ask, say to you. I understand you, that, but yeah. I, I only say that because. But what I can say to you is, is so it, it's a competitive cost. Go ahead. Sorry. What I would say to you is that's part of the cost evaluation. The maintenance is a part of the cost evaluation. The training is a part of it. And the Auditor General will have the ability to take a look at the cost once the, the contract is procured. But right now, this is about getting the best plane at the best price with the greatest economic benefits for but, Canadians. And we didn't want to guess okay. at that, number one. And secondly, we wanted to create a competitive process. Because if a company is going to sole source without going into competition, then they're not driven to come to the best possible deal I, they can. This I, I know, arrangement but, but, drives competition. But, but Minister, you know, Canadians have waited like six years for this and we have no real concrete answer. And, and I'm just going to tell you, in the U.S., again, they're concerned that this is going to be unaffordable. And the minute the chairman of the House Armed Services in the U.S., Representative Adam Smith, was so concerned about cost overruns, he said to the Pentagon was throwing money down a particular rat hole because the sustainment costs are brutal. The concern here is you've allocated $19 billion to get 88 jets, but with the cost overruns, I'm asking you again, are you guaranteeing we'll get 88 planes for $19 billion without reducing sustainment costs? But that's the whole part, that's the whole reason why this procurement process is so important. Because when you have the competition, at the end of the day, you're going to get the best plane for the best cost. That's exactly why the process is so important. And yes, in Strong, Secure and Engaged, that's the budget allotment. But right now, we can't discuss the actual numbers as the negotiations continue. But we can tell you that right now, this was the best bidder in terms of the process. Okay, uh, one of the criticisms of the original Conservative pushed by the F-35, who did not have the usual requirements that a manufacturer spend the equivalent value of the contract on Canadian industrial benefits. Lockheed Martin made Canadian companies bid against other countries who were part of the consortium then. In other words, there was no guarantee. Um, are there guaranteed industrial benefits that will be the equivalent of the cost of the jet? Has that changed in this negotiation? So highest weighting was given to bidders that could contractually guarantee the benefits. With respect to the negotiation as it continues, those things will have to be secured in the agreement. So there's no compromise there, but there was no question that as the process and the evaluation was undertaken, bidders that gave guarantees for those benefits were given full points. Okay, that's Philomena Tassi. And I, I want you to really, I'm just going to stop it there because I think you have to understand that. The minister seems to suggest that there are some guaranteed industrial benefits. That's really important. I just want you to understand that. When Canada used to buy military equipment, there was what's called a dollar for dollar. A dollar invested in military equipment was then reinvested by the company in Canada. That was the rule of procurement. The F-35 busted that when the Conservatives did that. You had to bid on it. And out of $45 billion spent, we'd only secured like $9 billion of investment. The Liberals are now suggesting there's some guaranteed investment. But that's not part of the original memorandum of understanding. That's why I was pressing there. 
and they say, oh, we can't release the deal. But the details matter. Did Canada get in guaranteed industrial benefits? Because that was not part of the original deal. And the answer is consequential. Okay, we're going to take a break and we're going to go the other side. Cryptocurrency and Pierre Polyevra. Can you opt out of inflation? From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about your money. Now, inflation is at a 30-year high, and there's lots of drivers for inflation. We talk about it a lot on the program. Whether it's supply chain from COVID, whether it's fuel prices because of the war in Ukraine, whether it's the result of the massive quantitative easing, which is the emergency supplies of money, that the government had to keep money markets afloat and lending markets afloat during COVID. And now we're dealing with record-breaking and, you know, 30-year high inflation rates. But Pierre Polyever, who has talked a lot about this, you know, the price of housing and inflation, okay, he's running to be the leader of the Conservative Party. He says he's running to be the Prime Minister. Well, yesterday, at an event, he decided that, you know, he... To replay some of his hits, like the Bank of Canada is to blame and Justin Trudeau for the $400 billion in cash that they created out of thin air, just for the record, factually, uh, monetary policy is controlled by the Bank of Canada, fiscal policy by the government, and the government does not control the Bank of Canada. It is an independent institution. But Pierre Polyever believes that that's why inflation is at a 30-year high, and he then he bought a shawarma with a Bitcoin because he's a big crypto guy, and he said this about crypto. Then he said that the answer to inflation, and he literally used these words, he said people need to be in charge of their own money, and they could, quote, this is what he said, opt out of inflation with crypto. And here's part of his pitch. We also need to give people the freedom to choose other money. If the government is going to abuse our cash, we should have the right to opt to use other higher quality cash. Higher quality cash. And now he wants Canada to be the, the crypto capital of the world. Listen to this. So that is my plan to enable Canada to become the blockchain and crypto capital of the world. Okay. So what does that mean? A lot of people say, I don't understand what he's talking about. What are What is Bitcoin? What are cryptocurrencies? And can you really, literally, as and I'm going to use this phrase, opt out of inflation? What does he mean by that? He said, I'll read his whole quote. CBC first quoted it. Choice and competition can give Canadians better money and financial products. Not only that, but it can let Canadians opt out of the inflation, opt out of inflation with the ability to opt into cryptocurrencies. Does that make any sense? Well, let's bring on someone who follows this well. Claire Brunel is a reporter with The Logic. She covers digital currencies. Hi, Claire. Hi, thanks for having me. A lot of people are like, what the hell is he talking about? He paid for a <laughs> shawarma with Bitcoin. Is this the future? Let's start with the basics. When he says, when Pierre Polyevre says, we need to give people the freedom to choose the money. The government is going to abuse our cash. We need higher quality cash. What is he talking about? Oh, man. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, uh, this whole uh, situation, I think, is a really great example 
of how things in the crypto world get muddled up with sort of how things actually are in reality currently and sort of the world that some Bitcoin advocates, some crypto advocates would like us to live in eventually in the future. Um, so a couple of things to note. Thing number one, um, while, uh, you know, Mr. Polyev was able to buy that shawarma at that one shawarma shop, you can't really, there's a, when was the last time you went to a store and saw something denominated in Bitcoin and saw the option to actually pay for it in Bitcoin? Probably pretty infrequently, possibly never, right? Um, that's still not uh, a widespread use currently but maybe he's saying it will be it could be yes i think that is what he's saying that it could be um that he would like it to be i just feel like it's important to note that currently that is not uh you know the main way that these digital assets are being used um another thing i think i think is important to note is that um bitcoin isn't a particularly good inflation hedge currently again i think that's something else that bitcoiners you know think that in the future it could potentially become i think they would also argue that you know if you hold it over time like certainly you outperformed inflation by many orders of magnitude <laughs> you did very well if you've been holding your bitcoin for you know a couple years five years ten years um but if you look back at the past few months when inflation has you know been uh you know, get, get really gaining ground, uh, cryptocurrencies have been in a market downturn. Um, they haven't acted as an inflation hedge in the sense that you would, you know, expect them to, that they've, they've been gaining uh, value. You've lost 30% of your value, value of your Bitcoin in the last number of months. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like those are, those are that's sort of an important starting point to talk about. These are things that, uh, you know, crypto advocates, Bitcoiners think that maybe it in the future will work that, that way. They think that's maybe how things should work. Um, but I, that's a little bit of a reality check. <laughs> so so let me just add, and you can, you can reality check me as I speak with the great Claire <laughs> Brunel, reporter with The Logic. Pierre Polyevra is often, he likes to the gold standard. Now, <clears throat> money uh-huh. used to be backed by gold until 1973, folks. And then, of course, we went to a free-floating exchange rate, which is, which is different. And a lot of people, <clears throat> gold standard lovers, say, oh, that's why inflation took off and we should get back to it. And, and one of the reasons I think Pierre Polyevra and others are saying that it's a hedge against inflation. And let's talk about his his crypto um, uh, and, and cryptic, frankly, idea that you can opt out of inflation, which is, of course, not possible. But it's because in the blockchain, which is where you mine um, uh, bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies, you can only have 21 million bitcoins. That's the max. Yeah. So their whole point is governments can print money. This is their allegation. So it's useless and it creates inflation. Whereas Bitcoin has a mat, you can only have 21 million Bitcoins and that's it. So it's kind of like the gold standard. Is that what he's trying to say? Um, that's, that's essentially the argument. Yes, that's among the arguments um, that people make. Um, it's also important to, you know, Bitcoin is just one of thousands of cryptocurrencies. Um, that's a property of Bitcoin. It's a property of other um, cryptocurrencies um, as well, um, like Ethereum. Um, there are other ones that have a hard cap like that. It doesn't necessarily... You know, it's it's not all of them have a supply cap like that. Um, and it's not a quality that's absolutely necessary for a cryptocurrency to have. But, yeah, that is um, that's one of the, you know, the proponents of Bitcoin will point to that. You know, there will only ever be 21 million. Um, and that means that, uh, you know, it's going to be deflationary rather than inflationary. And that they argue that's a better uh, basis of a monetary policy. That's essentially and that's it, folks. And yes. people are going to have to figure that out. So yes. when he said you can buy Bitcoin or a crypto 
and opt out of inflation. What do you think he meant by that? Because, you know, he, he's potentially a future prime minister or leader. And, and I've talked to a bunch of economists who say, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. Do you? Here's the thing. Like, I also, I actually, I try to avoid talking about this whole inflation thing, this whole monetary policy thing, because it's so speculative. It's so, you know, like, is one day Bitcoin, any other cryptocurrency going to, uh, you know, like really replace the Canadian dollar, other forms of government issued currencies as the method of payment that we actually use? Like, maybe it might, but it seems like a bit of a academic debate at this point. Um, you know, that's not currently how it works. So, like, would that be the good basis of a monetary policy one day in the future? Like, maybe. Is that really an argument that it makes sense to be having right now? I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not quite sure why this particular point really captures the imagination of the Bitcoin it's, community, But, but he's, he's selling it. Now, now, okay, so just a last thing. So when he says, let's make Canada the, bit, the uh, crypto capital of the world, what does that mean? How yeah, do you do so that? this is a little bit okay. This is a little bit more grounded in reality, and this is something that a lot of people are calling for right now. Um, yesterday or today, sorry, um, a new industry association announced that it's forming with a lot of the big crypto players in Canada. They're saying that you know we want to develop a national strategy for crypto that we currently don't have. Um, you know, there's a lot of legal clarity that we don't have that we need. Michelle Rumpel Gardner has also put forward a private member's bill saying that we should you know consult with industry and put together this national strategy. That I think, you know, there's there's something close to consensus on that point that we actually do need that. And that sounds a little more, uh, you know, reality based. Yeah, <laughs> and, but that's about know, that's about some kind of regulation of it, right? Yeah, it would be it would be about regulation. It would be about, uh, you know, harmonizing an approach among the different provinces so that you don't face different rules as a crypto company um, based in the different provinces. And it would be about recognizing that, you know, these, this is a, a, a new asset class that needs, right. um, you know, that needs legal clarity and maybe needs its own rules and perhaps better, you know, and more consistent enforcement of the existing rules. Well, this is interesting. Okay. Uh, I, I, first of all, I think we got to speak to Claire a little more. Claire Brunel from the great uh, publication, The Logic. She covers digital currencies. Folks, we better get up to speed on that. Thanks, Claire. Uh, coming up next, childcare, the debate. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back. I told you that this is a consequential news moment where we got the uh, emissions plan. Just landed on my desk here as I was at the commercial break. I'm reading through the 2030 emissions reduction plan from the government. And it's just a mere, I don't know how many pages it is. I'm just trying to look here. They don't even number the pages. Uh, 200, about 300 pages. So I got to go through that. Meantime, I'm still weeding through the $13.2 billion childcare plan for Ontario. Like, this government has now got childcare, national childcare plan in every single province and territory. And yesterday, uh, Ontario became the last to sign on. Big shocker. Why did they sign on? I think uh, Thursday marks nine weeks until to the day to the uh, Ontario election. So there's that. Government's going to give you $13.2 billion over the next number of years, and you're going to say no to that? No. You need those votes. And the fiscal year was going to be up this week, so if they didn't get the deal done, they'd lose a year of the pay. 
lapsed money. That's why Ontario is saying, look, aren't we great? We rolled in five years of money into four years. Well, you did because you signed on so late. But they still get the money. Good for Ontario. And this is where when $13.2 billion makes for strange political bedfellows, doesn't it? Boy, does it make friends. There's Doug Ford and Christian Freeland hugging it out. And Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce and Families, Children and Social Development Minister Karina Gold. It's like one big kumbaya ABC family. But, of course, there's a couple things. They're going to create 18,000 new childcare spaces. They're going to, by April 1st, people who have kids under the age of five at licensed places will already be starting to get a rebate. Daycare is going to be, or childcare is going to be $10 a day by 2025. It's going to be reduced this year by 25%. Hey, I've raised two kids with my wife. It is expensive. So this is consequential. And Doug Ford knows he's got to get this done. And Justin Trudeau, like the liberals have been trying to do this since Paul Martin. So they did it. But yesterday I spoke with the Ontario Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, and I said, wait, wait, your province held off on doing this because you wanted to be compensated for Ontario's full-day kindergarten. That didn't happen. Why did you give up on that? Here's what he said. Well, in fact, our long-standing position is the recognition of Ontario's unique advantages when it comes to a very comprehensive, mature child care program that is, I mean, frankly, has been the envy of many parts of the world when it comes to, uh, you know, what it does when it comes to increasing access to quality learning, uh, early learning for children. In this negotiation, we were able to achieve a longer deal of an additional sixth year, the only right. province to do that. We were able to negotiate $2.9 billion of additional investment. We were able to guarantee flexibility that allows for-profit and non-profit childcare operators to be part of the mix. They're committed at the current market ratio of 70-30 split. That is preserved. And we were able to do what I'm not sure if any province did, which is take five years of funding and allocated over four actual calendar years, which allowed a $600 million increase per year that got us to, by year 2025, as per the agreement, right. and, and, and par, par, partly because the, So that took, flexibility is helpful. Right. And, and, and partly because if you didn't get it, as you know, if you didn't sign it within the next month, some of that money would, would have lapsed. But you secured the agreement to review the finances right. three years into the deal. Who's responsible if there's a shortfall there? And what if there's a new federal government? Well, obviously, the three-year review mechanism is important for Ontario from a taxpayer protection. What it allows us to do is for both governments and ministries to work together to understand if there's any budgetary shortfalls in the out years. This is important because we want the program to be sustainable for families. We don't want future generations to be burdened by it. And so having a credible process to review the numbers, understand the gaps is the first principle. The second is the critical conversation with the federal government about the resources and finances they can deliver to bridge that gap mm -hmm. because it is their program's mandate to get to $10. We're signing on to it, but we need the requisite investment to get there. So this program review for us is very important in recognizing that there may be gaps in the year three, four, and five uh, and beyond. And therefore, the federal government will need to continue to play a critical role in increasing supports uh, right. to make sure that the fund is sustainable uh, and ultimately that we don't have to increase fees nor decrease the amount of spaces, the 86,000 that we are building. I think either of those options wouldn't be acceptable to Ontarians. And that's why we'll work with the feds to continue to make the case for long-term funding to sustain the program, get it to $10 and stay at $10 right. for the benefit but, uh, of Ontario parents.
Okay, so I wanted to fact check that because Ontario is saying, hey, we've got enhanced protection against funding shortfalls. I'm reading from their press release through a mandated financial review process in year three, the first of its kind to reconcile the actual cost of the new national child care plan with funding. So I spoke to the educator to uh, uh, Karina Gould, the minister in charge, the family's minister. And I said, is that true? Like in three years, if there's a shortfall where the actual costs go up. Um, and there's a review. Does the federal government then step in, as Ontario is expecting, to make this sustainable and, and, and come up with more money? Or is there a cap on the money? Well, check this out. Well, I, I think it's actually important to clarify um, what this review mechanism is and what it is not. Um, it is There is no um, mechanism that would require the federal government to provide more money. Um, we actually have a $10.2 billion agreement over five years that's fully costed, right? All of the space creation, all of the fee reductions, all of the measures around um, supporting the workforce, it's fully costed within um, the agreement that we have signed. What's slightly different with Ontario versus other provinces is that in every other province and territory, we've agreed to do the review at year two. Um, Ontario insisted on doing it in year three, which in effect is kind of two years after the agreement takes place because they signed, um, you know, with four days before the end of the fiscal year. Um, but it, but it is not um, how you described it in that there's no mechanism that would require. Yeah. Um, the federal government to put more money in. Right. It's not how, just for the record, this is how Ontario is describing it. I just want you to know, I'm literally reading from their song sheet, so I'm trying to reconcile. They're saying that the mandated financial review is to reconcile the actual costs of the new national child care plan with funding. So what if they find out there's a shortfall? What if Ontario mismanages it and they say, well, the actual costs don't match in the financial review. We need more money. What, what does the federal government say? Well, hopefully we're not going to get there because throughout the for each year and several times a year, we will have an implementation committee that will be working together with the province to kind of track progress on how things are going. Remember, these are... Um, commitments that Ontario has agreed to meet, um, and they fully costed them with the $10.2 billion that the federal government is providing. Um, so, you know, the the objective is to really make sure that we're working together, we're working collaboratively to deliver for families in Ontario to make sure that that happens. Now, can I just ask you, uh, territory could always ask the federal government for more money and, and provinces and territories do that all the time. Okay, so kind of interesting. Ontario's like, hey, we got this deal, and if in three years we can't afford it, they'll cover it. And she's like, no, that's not how it works. You're going to ask for it, but that's not happening. Nonetheless, there's a deal, but I always like to give you the facts. because Everybody's trying to spin this as we got the best deal, but clearly there's some light between what happens if this is unaffordable, if there's inflation, you got to hire workers at a time of high inflation. Will there really be 86,000 new spots by 2025? All right, we've got to take a break. Coming up, the greatest mystery. They found Shackleton's lost ship in the Antarctic, and the guy who did it joins us next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. When they found the ship, 
when they found the endurance, when they found Ernest Shackleton's ship, I went on the radio as a Shackleton nut, and I told the story of what I consider one of the most heroic rescues in history, the greatest open sail voyage in history, after Ernest Shackleton, on the eve of the First World War, went to the Antarctic and his ship sank, and 107 years later, it has been found. And as someone who has gone to the Arctic on expeditions to find the Franklin ships and the remnants of the Franklin and done lots of outdoor exploration, the story of Shackleton has always been one of the great stories. But no one knows it more, and I'm going to let him tell it because he'll do it far more eloquently than I, is Dan Snow. He is, of course, you probably know the award-winning historian, television presenter, broadcaster, and author from his podcast, History Hit, one of the most popular in the UK. He's a member of the team who discovered Shackleton's lost ship, The Endurance, and he's back. And we welcome Dan Snow. My God, I wish I was there, Dan. Hey, buddy. Thanks so much for having me on. I wish you'd been there. You sound like you'd have been in good company. Oh, my God. I Listen, I, I have done many uh, trips to try to locate the Franklin folks and, and, and hikes there, and uh, I, I love this stuff. So I want you, before we get to finding the ship, can you tell the story of Shackleton and what happened to the Endurance? Well, your introduction was great. You're exactly right. It's, a, it's pretty much the greatest rescue story, an open boat journey of all time. Basically, uh, as you said, on the eve of the First World War, they depart December 1914 um, from South Georgia, the little southern outpost of the British Empire, if you like, these islands, even further south in the Falkland Islands. They head into the ice of the Weddell Sea. The ambition was they would be the first people to cross the Antarctic continent, land on one side, go via the South Pole, out the other side. No one had ever done that before. They didn't even get to the Antarctic uh, continent. They got within, they could see it. They could almost reach out and touch it, but they were sailing so close and they got frozen in the ice of Weddell Sea. If they were only about 200 miles away from where they intended to land. And they were sailing down the coast of Antarctica. Uh, they then, when they were frozen in, the whole, the whole of the Antarctic winter. So they, and as they were frozen in, the ice in the Weddell Sea moves in this great big clockwise direction. And they got spat out slowly north. Now they were hoping they'd get spat out into the melting ice of the southern ocean they'd have a go again the next year but instead their ship was crushed they had to go and live on the ice in an ice camp they watched their ship sink they made a rough estimation of where it sank with the latitude and longitude and then they lived on the ice when the ice starts to break up in the spring and as they moved north they transferred to their open rowing boats which they'd salvaged from the ship and they made it to elephant island a journey of several days again through freezing cold temperatures one member of the crew had a heart attack. I mean, they were at the limits of endurance at that point. When they got to Elephant Island, they were not saved. It's a tiny scrap of land, no humans there, people don't pass by. So Shackleton made an extraordinary decision that he and six, uh, he and five of his best men would take the biggest and most seaworthy, basically, open boat rowboat, and they would go 800 miles across the Southern Ocean, the greatest, most powerful winds on the planet, great storms crashing through all the time this circumpolar ocean that goes round the bottom of the planet, swirling storm systems, and he would then sail through that to South Georgia. They do that. It takes about two weeks. They almost die. They're a hurricane. They're almost destroyed in a gigantic way. It's an unbelievable story of survival. Um, two, of the, two or three of them are, are so broken when they arrive that they put to shore immediately, and they then have to walk across South Georgia. No human beings have ever done before. 
up through the glaciers and the mountains of South Georgia. Shackleton does that in 36 hours, a mad dash, a mad hike, and he finally reaches the inhabited whaling stations on the other side of South Georgia. He then goes and rescues everyone from along the way, all these people who left behind him. He brings all 28 men home at the end of it. Dan Snow, well told. By the way, folks, the books, Caroline Alexander's book, uh, Endurance, uh, there are many books about this, many lessons on leadership from, from Ernst Shackleton. Just the open boat voyage, just climbing over the South Georgia mountains and glaciers, the 36-hour climb, just living on Elephant Island, those are extraordinary. But the first part of the journey, I just want people to realize, this is the ship, the Endurance becomes famous and now we'll get to the rescue because on the while they're living on it, while it's trapped in the ice, Shackleton realizes the only way they're going to get out and make money on this is if they document it. So you've got to film it, and you've got to take photos. And he's got this guy called Frank Hurley who is taking the most marvelous photos of the ship, the Endurance, on the ice before it sinks, which, by the way, they rescue. So we have these great icy pictures of the Endurance, and then it sinks. Now let's get to what happens, how you found the ship. Man, you're, you're, you're so right. And it's great to talk to such a Shackleton enthusiast. Um, and you're right. So and, and in a way, my job on the expedition was to do kind of what Frank Hulley did 107 years ago, which was just make sure the whole world knew about what was going on and try and engage and capture people's imaginations by podcasts and TikTok and Instagram or whatever else. So we were there above. We went to a search box. A very brilliant captain of endurance, as you know, Frank Worsley. He, he made a New Zealander, and he made a calculation. He guessed where they'd sunk, because there was no sun. It was cloudy the day it sunk. There was sun the next day, and he quickly took a measure with his sextant and fixed the latitude and longitude and estimated how far they might have drifted the previous day. We searched an area 15 miles by 9 miles approximately with his um, estimate in the middle. And after a month, well, we thought we'd found something after a week. Very excited. It looked like a great sonar signature on the seabed, 3,000 meters down the seabed. We used super um, advanced prototype, really, drones, uh, saber-toothed drones, which can fly along the seabed. For every meter they move forward, they're capable of scanning, surveying 1,400 square meters of seabed. They, they shoot out sonar beneath them and to the size of them as they move along. It flies along at about 60 meters above the seabed. Luckily, the seabed was very, very, very flat. So if you saw anything, it really stood out and it meant it could be an inter- a site of interest. We thought we found something after a week. It turned out to be, well, maybe some wreckage, maybe right. some wood, some rigging. But it was not the ship. And we continued the search of the ship. And then, boom, about four and a half miles south of where Worsley had estimated, we found endurance. It was a beautiful signature on the, on, on the sonar. We then switched this autonomous underwater vehicle into remote-operated mode, so we actually took control of it. We sailed it over, flew it over. We turned on the cameras on the front, turned the lights, and there we saw the hull of Endurance sitting proud of the, 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 the seabed, all in one piece, a coherent wreck. It didn't smash up when it hit the seabed, and it is beautiful. Now, you'll have seen the images. The, the, there are no there's basically, there's no wood in Antarctica, so there's no wood-eating microorganisms have evolved in Antarctica or on the seabed of Antarctica. And it's also very cold. It's minus one degree centigrade. So lower than freezing because it's salt water. It's lower than freezing. It's still not quite frozen. And so although all those things combined means that the water is super clear. It has the clarity of distilled water. And it means the wreck is like it is new. You can see that they're not nails, but they're like fastings that hold the planks onto the side of the hull. They're gleaming. 
the brass letters of endurance on the stern. We never ah. believed we'd be lucky enough to see this. We took the drone around the stern. I was in the little cabin, the control cabin. We took the drone around the stern, and there they were, these gleaming letters of endurance. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't believe our eyes. We knew we'd stumble across something, even if you don't care about Shackleton, even if you don't care much about the history, this was going to seize everyone's imaginations around the planet. Oh, I, I, you know, when I saw the ship, because I'd seen the Frank Hurley photos, and I'm speaking to Dan Snow, who was there, uh, who's the historian and the podcaster. When you see, you think, my God, the ship was crushed in the ice. There will be just nothing left. The bloody thing's in great shape. Talk about endurance. <laughs> it, it looks absolutely impeccable. Now, what I'm going to do is take a short break. I'm with Dan Snow the award-winning historian, television presenter, broadcaster, author. Uh, his podcast, History Hit, is great. But for me right now, being a member of the, the, the team that discovered Shackleton's lost ship, the Endurance, is marvelous. Now, the question now remains, what's on the ship? Um, how deep is it? But I think for most people listening right now, there are lessons as to why this is important. There's lessons in leadership, in endurance, in adventure, and and and. The, the legacy of Shackleton, folks, is so compelling because when you think you're going through a, a hard time, you have to think, act like Shackleton. And when Dan Snow's back, we'll talk about the ship, what happens now, and the legacy of the great Ernest Shackleton. Lots more to come. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. I think one of the great discoveries is the ship of Ernest Shackleton, the Endurance, which was crushed in the ice in the Antarctic when he was trying to uh, cross the Antarctic, but he saved his entire crew. And he took what is roundly considered to be the greatest open boat voyage in history through the Drake Passage, essentially, the, the roughest waters in the world. And, and the, the endurance was just found by the, a great team, but on that team was Dan Snow, who, of course, is an award-winning historian. If you watch the BBC, you'd see many of his programs. His dad was also an award-winning broadcaster. By the way, his mom, Ann McMillan, you'd know her from CBC, I knew her, uh, a fantastic uh, journalist as well. So he's half Canadian. So we know your Dan, we know of your Canadian heritage as well. And his hit podcast, of course, uh, History Hit. But he was on this endurance uh, mission. Dan, um, I love the fact that you've got the uh, Canadian connection here. Well, I'm, I'm so, I don't sound Canadian, but I'm, I am Canadian. My wife only said she truly understood me when she saw me in Canada and realized that I was in fact, truly, you know, I'm a half, I'm half, half Canadian. I was very proud to carry the flag of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society south of me and display that flag on the ice over the site of the shipwreck as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and uh, an organization, of course, that I'm a fellow of, which I, I love that you're uh, part of that. Um, so, Dan, let, let's talk about the endurance. You know, you've been on many, many, uh, you've done many documentaries and you've been, you're a historian. What was the feeling like when you saw the endurance, uh, the ship emerge out of the depths? How deep is it, and what will happen to the ship now? It was 3,000 meters down, 
Uh, just uh, just quickly on the what happens to it, the answer is nothing. It's protected by the Antarctic Treaty. We weren't able to touch anything or remove anything. We saw lots of amazing objects, which I can tell you about in a sec. But it's gonna, it's, it's being preserved down there. Um, it's it's uh, I presume people. I'd be surprised if, if uh, you know, very eccentric, rich people try and go and dive on it soon in their little submersibles and have a look at it. But for the moment, it just lies down there now. It's been it's marked on the chart. It can be monitored and, and hopefully protected over the years that come. I think the atmosphere was extraordinary. I think we all realized we were doing something that probably was going to be a career highlight. There, there was a sense of huge privilege, a sense of excitement. I was in the room. We were taking that drone around. We were looking top down, we were looking around the bows, around the stuff, and there were just gasps. People were gasping out, they were whistling, yeah. they were cheering. There were, I think one or two people had a few tears. It was, it was an extraordinary, there was a, there was a, 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 a knot of excitement in all our, in all our chests. And, and when the drone had to come back up to be recharged, the battery life would be maybe eight hours. We had to take, charge it into it, but we were just desperate to get, we just watched, we sat there and watched it recharge. Um, and we were just desperate to get back in the water and get back on the seabed. And, and the, the great thing is, you know, the technology is now deployable. There's 4K cameras, high, ultra-high resolution cameras. Amazing. But we also did laser scans to correct to within millimeters, uh, like the LIDAR scans. Um, we did, so, so we are going to be able to build a 3D model of this vessel. And you'll be able to see things on that 3D model that you can't see on the cameras, it'll be so accurate. What, what's on there? Like, they look, they had lived on that ship. They'd stripped and ripped it just to survive on the ice. But clearly, they'd left a lot intact. What, what did you see on there? You're, you're totally right. There's some, some of the things that will always stay with me, though, the things they did leave behind, was there was a, there's a flare gun, which is cool. It's, there's, a section of, um, there's a section of the officer's cabins where, where the deck has come away slightly, so you can, you can peer in. Sadly, the drone's too big to kind of get inside the ship like you see with the Titanic or something like that. But um, you, can, you have to just look around, and you can peer into some of the officer's cabins and you see a flare gun there, which they would have used to call people back to the ship if the ice was moving and shifting, or perhaps there was some danger from maybe a, maybe a, you know one of the big leopard seals. Um, then we, there's footwear. There's quite a few boots and, and shoes around. There's crockery lying there, plates and and and, uh, and, and some. You know, it's great. You'll know because you're a master Shackman fan. There's, there's one shot. How you think of them cleaning the lino? On the floor, they're all scrubbing the floor. Officers and men alike have to scrub the floor. Well, there's a roll of that lino that is very clearly visible on the lidar scan, on the laser scan. So it just connects us right back with those pictures. It's, it's, folks, I can't tell you um, to see the ship underwater and then to compare the ship that you see in the Frank Hurley photos as it's trapped in the ice is extraordinary. And and I'm just going to urge people again because. We live in a time where inspiration is at a premium. And if you don't know the story of Shackleton, it is worth reading. Uh, and there's leadership books. Um, our former head of the Navy wrote me a note after I covered this. And he said, you know, I'd read uh, Shackleton's story and, and his leadership story uh, many times uh, as an inspiration. Why is the story of Ernest Shackleton so inspiring? What is he? Because, you know, if you chase the Franklin voyage, like Franklin, who was the man, he ate his shoes. And Franklin was, you know, and I, believe me, I'm obsessed with Franklin, but he was kind of a, a loser. I mean, every, everything he touched, every voyage he made failed. They, they, people starved. They disappeared. They died. Shackleton was the opposite. Why is he so compelling? Well, I think it's a really, it's a really good point. We, we, we're still obsessed. I think he's a very modern hero. He, he was interested not in conquering lands and, you know, he, he was interested in 
in in his men. He got, he wanted his, his men to get home safely. He, he was on his way to the South Pole. He could have made it. He thought, but he turned around because he didn't think his two colleagues were going to make it. He he was the furthest man south at that point in history. And yet he turned around. He, he wanted his he wanted his men to come home all alive. He wanted those twenty men to come home on endurance. And he gave his last pair of gloves to a guy. He gave his last biscuit. He gave his hot milk. He was compassionate. He, he didn't. He wasn't obsessed with class and, and sort of Edwardian gentlemen and, and crew and officers all being separate. He, he he was a very modern hero from that point of view. And also, I think Evan, you touched on it. He also experienced failure. But when he when he failed, he stepped up. And his true heroism can be seen because we all make mistakes. We all screw up. I, I've, everything I've ever tried, I've basically messed up. But what uh, true heroism is not how you act when things are going well. I think true heroism is how you act when everything has fallen apart, everything's against you, all of your dreams are dashed, but you get you get through. Mm. You make decisions then and there, and you get them through. And I think that's what makes him such an attractive hero for our generation. I think the other thing is, and I was speaking to Dan Snow, um, when you look at that mindset, if you look at, for example, comparing Franklin to Shackleton or any, and you study battles, you've done many documentaries. It's the idea to adapt to the circumstance, to not be blinded sometimes by prejudice. You won't use local knowledge. Shackleton was the ultimate. Not only did he endure, but he endured by adaptation. And, and, and whether you're studying generals, um, and you've done a lot of battle history, generals who could adapt to new circumstances, new technologies, um, whatever was changing, won or survived. Those who didn't lost, and, you know, of course... There's a there's a way to make anybody look like a hero if you die on a on a great in a battle or on a great adventure. But Shackleton's like maybe it's better we don't die. Maybe that's the ultimate form of heroism because he was adaptable. I think that's right, and I think that's why he's endured. Whereas, you know, who's who? Not many people now around the world have heard of you know General Wolfe or Montcalm. These these people that in previous generations would have thought were great heroes. I think he's modern. He wants his guys to get home. Guys get home. And he did everything. He did not rest until every single one of those boys was back home with their families. And I think that, and, and so he provides that inspiration. And you know, people said to me, there's a war in Ukraine. There's big things going on in the world at the moment. What the heck are you guys doing? And I said, but I think, I think searching for shipwrecks is the thing that makes the rest of life bearable. Like, it's what, it's what humans do when they're best. They, mm. inspire, they hike from one side of a continent to the other. Mm. They want to go deeper. They want to go further. They want to find shipwrecks. And it's those images beamed up from the seabed that kind of that, that I think are super important because they inspire. They get fire people with a passion for what the world could be without just endlessly looking at scary, awful news that comes out of Eastern Europe, for example, at the moment. Yeah, Dan Snow. Uh, Ernest Shackleton left on the eve of World War I and he returned to great acclaim to a world changed. His ship was found as the world was changing again on the eve of another conflict. Uh, Dan Snow, you come back anytime. Uh, what a fantastic conversation. I, I thought you, I, I can't wait for the book about this. Uh, I can't wait for, to see the 3D model of the Shackleton ship. And just thanks for uh, giving us a break from the world. Dan Snow, I really appreciate it, sir. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it too. Thank you. Dan Snow, what a great guy. Check out his uh, podcast, History Hit. Um, but man, wasn't that a nice break from the world? How I could talk about that, as you can tell, for a long time. All right, uh, coming up, Indigenous leaders are meeting with the Pope. Why is the Pope waiting to say whether he'll apologize for the residential institution? Your call's next.
As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Welcome back. So coming up, we've got the details on the new climate emissions plan. The emissions reductions plan just released. Prime Minister and the uh, Environment Minister were out there. What does it mean for oil and gas? What does it mean for the price of gas? What does it mean for price on carbon? One of those issues that you're going to need to know about because you're going to pay for it at the pump. What does it mean for the rebate? What is, are you going to be buying a car that's uh, electric car in the next two years, five years? These are consequential moments. The world's changing. What does it mean because of the, the, the energy crisis with the war in Ukraine? So we'll bust all that down for you. I, I love to know these things because people like me are like, what, what's gonna, how much is going to tank gas going to cost? What about inflation? What do it? You know, my lease is coming up on on my car. Do I have to buy an electric car? But how? You know, the world's changing. What's going to happen in Alberta? So I like to know these things. So we'll we'll bust all that down for you. Got to give you everything you need to know. Come out of this show fully armed. But let's get your thoughts on this, and maybe you can help me understand this. And so here's the number, and then I'll give you the question. One eight five five six three three ten ten. One eight five five six three three ten ten, or seven ten ten. Should the Catholic Church, should the Pope, who's meeting with Indigenous leaders right now, just apologize already, and just announce a compensation package for the Catholic Church's role? In the, res- quote, residential schools, I, 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 I hesitate to call them schools because my school didn't have a cemetery, did yours? We had a soccer field. My kid's school has a football field. Did, did your school have a cemetery? Mine didn't. Maybe the clue is when you got a cemetery at the, quote, school, things are pretty dark. But the residential, quote, schools or institutions where kids were abused and tortured, where their culture was eviscerated, it was a cultural genocide, if not a full genocide. 75% of them run by the Catholic Church. Federal government's culpable, other churches culpable. The goal was to erase indigenous culture. And we know from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission what happened. The accounts are horrible. And now you've got Métis, Inuit and indigenous leaders who are, have come to Rome to finally ask for a, an apology. Should the Pope apologize, one uh, 655 or seven ten ten? Here's what I don't understand. We know what happened there. The Pope is doing deep listening, apparently. What does he, need, what does he not know? Does the church, has the church not read the thousands of pages of testimony in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? They're damning. There's thousands of books and survivors' accounts of what happened inside the residential school system. Other churches have apologized. The government has apologized. The Catholic Church, at one point, said, oh, we're going to compensate with $25 million, and they tried to fundraise for it. They never paid it. They, paid, they, they managed to, to raise $3.7 million. It was a humiliating—every other church paid, but not the Catholic Church. Couldn't even, couldn't even do that. Then they were released from that obligation. They've used their lawyers to fight compensation, to fight the records. And now you've got leaders essentially begging for an apology in Rome. And why is the, the Pope just 
holding them in suspense. Like, come here, spend the week. I may apologize. I may not. I may apologize when I come to Canada, but I'm not sure I'm going to come to Canada. Like, now there's a $30 million pool that they say they're going to raise. When? The Catholic Church is worth tens of billions of dollars. Sell an artifact. Come up with some money and a plan. Why is it taking so long? I don't understand that. Now, some people say, well, Evan... Pope Benedict had already apologized. No, 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 no. Let me be clear. When indigenous leaders met with Pope Benedict 15 years ago, Pope Benedict expressed, quote, sorrow, did not say sorry, did not apologize. It was private. It was not public as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has demanded, a public apology. Should the Catholic Church now, instead of waiting, apologize at least and compensate? And I don't understand this. Maybe you can help me. Why the wait? The power dynamic here seems all screwed up. The Catholic Church was the one culpable here, and yet these leaders are having to fly to Rome and come in to sort of give an account of things they've already given account of so they can, the church can listen and, and maybe decide to apologize. Is the power dynamic here screwed up? And then the, the Pope said, well, I'm going to come and I'll apologize there, like do this favor to indigenous leaders and, and, and survivors when they're the guilty party here. one 1010 or 71010. Uh, Freddie, what's up? Well, you took the words out of my mouth. He, uh, compensation is huge. Uh, his apologies will have to go on and on and on. The man would have to be on tour throughout the United States and Canada for years. Um, it, it's directly not involved with him, but he has to, uh, the buck stops with him. You may be right. I appreciate the call. Someone just said, Evan, as a former Catholic, I can tell you exactly why the Pope refuses to apologize to our indigenous brothers and sisters. It's quite simple. The moment he makes a public apology, it'll be played over and over again in every single litigation case against the church. Unlike our federal government that apologizes and now we use taxpayer dollars to provide compensation, the church doesn't want to spend its money in this regard. Um, The church has already had to uh, compensate for victims of sexual abuse. And, but isn't the church in the contrition business? Isn't it in the, the business of morality? Like, let's be clear. Isn't their core competency asking for forgiveness and repentance and spiritual cleanliness? Why, why, why do people say, well, you know, they have to go through their lawyers. Isn't, isn't their whole job to face our quote sins and ask for forgiveness? Nicholas, what's up? Yeah, uh, hi, Evans. How are you doing? Uh, listen, you're absolutely right about the. Now, I understand, you know, if you're, if you're a religious person, uh, you know, under the Bible, you're supposed to basically uh, repent and ask for forgiveness and, uh, you know, clear your sins. Why the delay? What's the. Is there a, a financial problem here, or what is it? Well, I'm sure it is a financial issue. I, I, I imagine. I appreciate the call. But someone, I want to answer this question, and, and, and I appreciate the call, and people can just call in. I'm just trying to understand this, because we all know the situation. We've all read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But someone says, quote, Evan, it's because he hasn't heard from all the delegations yet, and he's coming this summer to Canada. I don't know how you know this, Texter. Maybe he is. I hope he does. If he's going to commit, he'll wait until he's here. Think about it. Let me, let me just respond to this real quick. Why, why do we have to wait? Why doesn't he just simply apologize now? Why doesn't he say to the, the indigenous leaders who have made this extraordinary journey to the Vatican, thank you for coming. 
We've clearly is, looked at all the text. Vatican we are going to isn't, apologize. Go ahead. Isn't the Vatican the richest uh, country in the world? I don't know that, but um, uh, Nicholas, I'm not sure if, I mean, it's got great wealth. I don't know if it's the richest country in the world. It may well be. Uh, I got to look that up. Um, let me go to Sandra. Sandra, what's up? Hi, good afternoon, Evan. Evan, I, um, to me, I don't really think it matters whether or not the Pope apologizes or not. I don't think he is going to. I would be shocked if he did. Benedict never apologized. I remember following this years ago, and Francis isn't going to apologize. It's over with. You know, the people are going there, and they're telling their stories, and he's trying to make them feel better, I guess, by saying he feels bad about it all. But an apology is not coming. I don't care if he comes to Canada 20 times. He's not going to apologize. It's as simple as that. That's the way I see it, Evan. Uh, Yeah, and I appreciate the call. I I would just uh, tell you that I I actually think he will apologize. I know Benedict didn't. But the call to action number 58 and the uh, Truth and Reconciliation says, we call upon the Pope to issue an apology to survivors, their families, communities for the Roman Catholic Church's role in the spiritual, cultural, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse of First Nations, Inuit, Métis children in Catholic-run residential schools. They want a full apology, like he issued in 2010, to the Irish victims of abuse. So they're asking for it. I actually think he'll deliver it. My question is, why make people wait? Why dangle them in suspense? I think that's painful, painful to see. And I don't think it's right. But let's take a break. If you're worried about the price of gas, you do not want to miss this next segment coming up. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Well, it is finally here. The 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan. The details of how this government says they're going to hit their Paris climate targets. Now, you might think, all right, what does it mean for the price of gas? How is that going to be with the war in Ukraine and inflation and the, the, the the price on carbon going up this week? How are we going to do this? What, what does it mean? How are we going to cut emissions by 42% in the oil and gas industry by 2030 and still actually be able to afford, I don't know, to fill up your car? Well, Michael Bernstein is the executive director of Clean Prosperity, which is a nonprofit organization that works towards market-based solutions to the climate crisis. He's been following this closely, and I think Justin Trudeau is speaking right now about the emissions plan again. Uh, Michael, great to have you on the program. Can you give people the details of what was announced today? Yeah, sure, Evan, and it's good to be with you. Um, This is Canada's first detailed plan for how they're going to actually reach the emissions target they set for 2030, which is a 40% reduction. You know, for years, governments have been making pledges over and over again, lots of words, um, but we've never had yet laid out how are we actually going to get to any of the targets we've set. Um, So this is the first attempt to do that. 
it reiterates a lot of the previous climate policies. You just mentioned a couple of them. You know, there's carbon pricing, there's regulating emissions for the oil and gas sector, there's mandating uh, zero emission vehicles, for example, you know, electric vehicles and transport and on and on and on. It lays out a wide series of policies and states based on government modeling that they believe they can get to a 40 percent reduction uh, in just eight years by 2030. Okay, I'm holding the 300-page plan in my hand. What questions do you have? Like, what stands out to you, Michael Bernstein? Uh, The good, the bad, and the questionable. I think the the biggest thing that stands out for me, Evan, is how are we going to do all of this? You just mentioned it, 300 pages, uh, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of initiatives here, lots of spending and regulations and all sorts of things. The government only has so much time and capacity. So what I'm asking myself is, how are we going to prioritize? You know, what I don't see there, I think there's a lot of encouraging things in there. So, uh, you know, let me be very clear about that. But if we're going to actually achieve what's in this paper, we've got to figure out how do we prioritize. And I think what we really need to do is focus on the top, say, five to ten measures. Those are things like carbon pricing. There's things like making sure our electricity relies on clean sources like wind and solar, cleaning up our transport. But we've got to prioritize here if we're actually going to reach our goals. What in here is unrealistic given new energy needs and a lot of people are saying, well, the the Russia situation has changed the fossil fuel picture. We're going to need more robust fossil fuel use, not less. Yeah, what's really interesting about the plan, and it actually dovetails uh, on some of the reporting that we've done at Clean Prosperity that we've talked about before, Evan, is that they are showing that the oil and gas sector, oil in particular, is going to grow production to 2030. I think we'll be at about 5 million barrels per day by 2030, according to this plan, all while they're looking at achieving very ambitious reductions in the sector. So that's going to be a controversial and very complicated part of the plan. I think it is doable. Um, It's going to require relying on strategies like carbon capture, which means we take the emissions out of the industrial uh, stacks as they come out when they're being produced. Um, But that really is going to be a a real hot button issue uh, within this plan. Because how do you, on one hand, you know, you're going to put out the Trans Mountain Pipeline comes online. you got to ship more oil and gas, and it's growing, and yet you're going to cut emissions. How does that work? Like, how do you cut emissions in the oil and gas industry by 42% and grow the amount of barrels of oil? I, like, yeah. Is the technology <laughs> even available to do that? At this point, carbon capture and storage sounds great. People say, well, we'll do that. It doesn't exist to do that. Well, the good news, Evan, is, is, is we do have the technology. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely not. But I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, you referenced carbon capture. We do, although, although some people poo-poo that technology, we do have that in operation today. We are capturing 5 million tons every year in Canada already. Uh, another example would be uh, methane. You know, that's another greenhouse gas. It actually leaks from these pipelines. So we ought to spend some time fixing those leaks. We're, we're wasting the natural gas. We're polluting the atmosphere. So uh, fixing those leaks would be another obvious smart strategy. Um, and there are other investments we can make in lower carbon fuels like hydrogen, as an example. Um, and so this is possible. But eight years, when it comes to big infrastructure projects, is Uh, basically tomorrow, maybe even yesterday. In other words, we have very little time. 
So we've got to act quickly, and we've got to do it in a way, you just mentioned it, Evan, in a way that not only achieves our emissions goals, but look, we have other key goals as a country. We've got to make things affordable for people. We want to uh, be a part of the effort uh, in Western democracies to ensure energy security, especially with the Russian-Ukrainian situation. So we've got a lot of things ahead of us. And so, you know, so, like so what's it going to mean? The average person can say, oh, cri- here we go. The price of gas is going to go through the roof. Is that about to happen? No, I don't think this plan will uh, will mean a major increase in the price of gas. The price of gas is going to be much more dictated by the supply and demand, by things like this war in Ukraine, by other geopolitics. Will it contribute to increasing costs? Yes, there will be some increase. You know, the carbon price, for example, does raise the cost of gas. Um, but of course, that money that money also gets returned to Canadians in the, in the form of checks. So if we're going to rely on things like carbon pricing, we can contain the increase in costs. But I can't, I'm not going to say it's going to be painless, but I do think it's achievable. Okay. Uh, by the way, isn't it, this week is the price in carbon going up this week? That's right. April 1st, it will rise from 40 to $50 a ton, which means about a two-cent rise in the price of gas. But, of course, remember, all that money comes back. So well, it comes Earth, back example, to provinces, just, but it comes back to only only to the people in provinces like Ontario or Alberta that have the backstop. Yeah, and it only applies in those provinces as well. So, um, you know, other, other provinces have their own systems. Quebec has a cap-and-trade system. But you're right, there's four key provinces where this applies, and all that money does go back then to uh, households. And does it pay? Does, does it, like, people will say, well, yeah, but it doesn't add up anymore because of inflation. It's not enough. The check's not enough anymore. Is the rebate keeping up with inflation and the price of gas? Well, the rebate is 100% of the money collected, right? So whatever they charge you at the pumps, that's going back to you as individuals and businesses. So inflation will not really impact on that specific policy, but of course it will impact cost of living more generally. Okay. Anything else? What other big question? I'm going to talk to the environment minister, Stephen Guibault. If you had one key question for him, an accountability question, what would it be? How are we going to prioritize all of these different policies? You've proposed many dozens of policies. So what is going to actually be doable in the next year or two that's going to make a real meaningful difference in our emissions in Canada? Michael Bernstein giving us the goods. Uh, this is a a big thing, though. By the way, folks, and to be fair, I literally got the plan on my lap. I haven't gone through the 300 pages, as I'll do tonight. It's a big plan, though, and it's detailed. Whether it works or not, at least we got a plan, right, Michael? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, look, this is the first step. And I, I myself yeah. have just gotten off an airplane, Evan, so I've just been reviewing it on the plane in advance of this. But I have to say, um, you know, this, people should think about this as, as a helpful step, but we've got to see what they actually do in the next year or two. We've never seen right. a meaningful reduction in emissions in Canada ever. So are we actually right. going to be able right. to achieve this now in the next eight years? Michael Bernstein, Clean Prosperity, thank you. And I'll see everyone tonight on Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern.